better? Good. Morning, everybody. Um, we're back reading again in Revelation, and we're reading at Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, the two witnesses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these are two prophets and had been a torment to, dwell on the, to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. 
There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is God's word. Let's just have a wee moment together to pray. Lord, your word says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. You are the Lord who is, who was, and who will be, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. We cannot even comprehend how mighty, how majestic, how wonderful, how glorious you are. Lord, we read these passages, and they can be hard for us to, to even read, never mind, try to understand. So I pray, Lord, that you will bless John to help us to open our minds to do that. To get a glimpse, Lord, of what you're meaning here and how it actually plays out in our own lives. But Lord, I pray more than anything that you will still our hearts, that we will be still to know, to know you, Lord, at this time. After the busyness of Christmas and New Year, Lord, may we come in here and just take time to breathe, to spend time with you, Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Carolyn. Uh, so we are back in Revelation. Uh, I'm sure you've missed it. <coughs> That's sarcasm. Uh, we're back in Revelation, and we're back in Revelation chapter 11 today. And we'll be here for quite some time. I think it takes us right up until Easter. Uh, not chapter 11, the book of Revelation, uh, just in case you're panicking. The whole book of Revelation will take us right up till Easter, so we're back in today. Let me ask you a question as we begin today. How do you view the church? And I don't mean uh, Cornerstone Church. If you're visiting with us, I don't mean the church that you're from. Uh, how do you view the church over history? How do you view the church from the ascension, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit until Christ returns? How do you view the church? What's your thoughts about the church over its entire history? Over 2,000 years and, and more to come. How, re, how would you sum it up? What would you say? Well, today's passage actually gives us a glimpse of the entire history of the church. And we'll get a really good glimpse of what the church looks like from the period, as I say, from Jesus uh, resurrection and his ascension until his second coming. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians gives a description of himself and his colleagues at the time, but it's also a really good description of the history of the church. Let me read this description from 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 to 10, in a favorable time I listen to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then Paul goes on to describe himself and his colleagues, basically the church. Listen to this. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, 
and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand or for the left. And then he makes these series of paradoxical statements. Basically, they're opposites, but they describe him and the church. Listen to this. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's the church, especially and in particular that little phrase, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That is the description of the church that we will see in Revelation chapter 11. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What I want to do since it's been a couple of weeks or a few weeks now since we've been in Revelation, I want to just give a brief recap because on Tuesday morning when I came back into the office to, to look at chapter 11, I had to do a brief recap of how we were interpreting the book. So what I want to do is give you a brief recap of just how we interpret or how I am interpreting or what we should look for in the book of Revelation. First of all, the book must, an interpretation of the book must provide blessings for all believers from the time of its writing until the time of Christ's second coming. Remember, Revelation begins and ends with a promise of blessing to those who read, hear, and keep its prophecies. Those promises bookend the whole thing that happens in the book of Revelation. Everything that happens is bookended by those promises. So Revelation cannot just be relevant to the first hearers in the first century. It cannot just be relevant to those who live in the few years before Christ's second coming. It must be relevant for the church over all ages. It has to say something. It has to speak to us today, or else it is of no purpose. It has to be relevant. So remember that as we interpret the book. Second, Revelation, this is important, Revelation is not chronological in order. We, we, we've talked about this over and over again. The events that happen in Revelation are not chronological. They do not happen one after the other. It is cyclical in nature. Remember, we go through a phase of, of, of trumpets blown, of bowls of, of whatever, and that is the history of mankind, and it goes over that and over that again. It's cyclical in nature. It is not chronological. And third, Revelation is a deeply symbolic book. 
Remember, we talked way back at the start about it being uh, apocalyptic in nature. It's, it's an apocalyptic genre of book, so therefore it is deeply symbolic and not always literal. That's really, really important. For example, we will meet a character in today's text for the first time, the beast. That is not a literal character. It is a metaphor or a symbol for something else. All right? Really important. Not literal all the time. So, as we come to chapter 11, the question is this. How does chapter 11 bless us today? As we look at this chapter, as Carolyn read the chapter, I'm sure, as, as I came to it on Tuesday morning, as Carolyn read that, and if you haven't read it before today, or if you haven't read it in some time, you're thinking, what the blazes? That's literally what, like, how on earth? What are we going to get out of this? But that's the question. How is it going to bless us today? By hearing, keeping the message that is contained. So those are some general principles to keep in mind as we go through the book of Revelation. But then it's really important to, to recall where we are and what we've just heard. So then we can move into chapter 11 uh, seamlessly. Chapters 8 and 9 relate to the seven angels have seven trumpets of judgment. They sound them one by one. The first four angels sound their trumpet, trumpets in chapter 8. In each case, disaster strikes the earth. Then in chapter 9, evil forces God and, and, and he attacks his enemies directly. And there is one last trumpet to sound, the seventh trumpet. But you remember, if we go back chapters 10 and the first half, what we'll see today, chapter 11, is this interlude between the 6th and the 7th. Do you remember in the last cyclical nature, we, we had an interlude between the 6th and the 7th, and then in this one, we have a little interlude between the 6th and the 7th again. But remember what happened in chapter 10. Chapter 10 was an emphasis on the Word of God. The Word of God has authority. The Word of God would be fulfilled, and the people of God must be faithful to God's Word. We'll pick up a little bit on what just happened in, in chapter 10 in a moment. But as we go into chapter 11, I must begin again with the caveat of this. This is my opinion. Yes? We clear? This is my opinion based on someone else's opinion. Based on someone else's opinion. And I could go back 2,000 years. All right? So, do your own work, basically. All right? This is my opinion. I am giving you what I have got. But if you do not agree, that's okay. We can do that. We cannot agree on, on the interpretations of Revelation. And we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll all be in glory. And then I'll show you you're wrong. All right? But... Let's go. Right, chapter 11. First of all, what we see in chapter 11 of Revelation is this. The church protected. The church protected. First of all, if you recall from the last time in chapter 10, John is asked to eat the little scroll. And the language and the imagery there of eating the little scroll, which was the Word of God, which, do you remember, was sweet to some, bitter to others. He was to eat it, and it was bitter in his stomach. That was an echo of the, the prophecies of Ezekiel. 
or the book of Ezekiel. And the same thing is continuing here in chapter 11. Like Ezekiel, in the 40th chapter of Ezekiel, if you go there afterwards, you can look at it, the temple is measured. Ezekiel is given this vision of the temple, and the temple is measured. And so John here is asked to measure the temple. Now, again, some read this and some interpret this as a physical, literal temple that is to be yet to be reconstructed in modern Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. So they look forward to that day when this temple is going to be reconstructed in, 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 the, in the city of Jerusalem, Israel's modern-day capital. Now, what I would say about that interpretation is that it misses the entire point of the passage. It misses the entire point of the passage. Why? Because it ignores the symbolism that is contained in the book. It ignores the symbolism, the apocalyptic nature of the literature that we're dealing with. So if, it, if, if I don't think that there's a, modern, there's a temple to be reconstructed, John is measuring this temple that is to be reconstructed in, in modern-day Israel, in Jerusalem, what do I think is going on here? Well, what I think is going on is that John is keeping the same emphasis that there is in the New Testament throughout the whole of the New Testament. The temple here in these opening verses of chapter 11 is symbolic of the church. It is symbolic of the church. Think about New Testament descriptions of the church. Let me read a couple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you know you are what? God's temple. That God's Spirit dwells within you, the church. So John is to measure the temple. What's the temple? The church. Let me give you another one from 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to Him, a living stone, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a what? Spiritual house, a temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is John measuring? He is measuring the church. He is measuring God's people. But he's not to measure the outer courts of the temple. Verse 2, it is given over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. The temple is to be measured, the church, but outside the nations will trample the holy city. What does this mean? Well, it means this. The measuring here is a way of saying that God is taking full inventory of His people. He is taking full inventory of His people so that not one of them will be lost. Not one of them will be lost. Not a stone will be missing from the spiritual house that God is building as He fits us together. Living stones built on top of one another in Christ Jesus, chosen and precious. 
The nations will rage and they will trample, but the chosen people of God will remain. They will be protected and they will be brought home. He wants us to see, as we'll see in a moment, that the church will suffer. The church will suffer at the hands of the unbelieving world. But here's the good news for the people of God. Neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's the church. You've been measured. You're in. And God has taken full inventory. And you're in. If you're in Christ Jesus. You're loved. You're counted. You're known. You're cherished. You're beloved. And you will be protected. And you will be preserved. That's what's going on here. There's protection. A couple of application points we need to make here is this. We'll see it in a moment very, very clearly. We're protected. The church is measured. You're counted. You're in. But the church will be persecuted by unbelievers. We need to get this. We need to understand this. We need to, we need to get alongside Peter and, and, and be like not surprised when persecution comes. We need to understand it. Like, like if you think about persecution for the church, you've got to think, why, why wouldn't the, the unbelieving people persecute the church? They don't have the same beliefs. They don't have the same values. They don't, folks, we don't like different. As humanity, we don't like different. So why would the unbelieving world not persecute the church? Unbelievers will persecute the church. And here's the second point of application when it comes to this. We're protected. As a church, we're in. But the church over 2,000 years has always thrived on the margins and not on the mainstream. Has always thrived on the margins, not on the mainstream. George C. Wilson says this, Christian mission has always thrived by surging in the margins and under the radar. When we somehow get into positions of power, the wheels always come off. This is pretty much the way it's always been. Marginalization for the church is to be expected, and we are not to live in fear of it. Why would we live in fear of it? if we genuinely believe that we are protected and that we will be preserved and we will be presented at the end day as the holy temple of God, why do we live in fear of being in the margins? We are not to, to raise our fist when we don't get our own way. We're not to, to rally around when things aren't going our way. Right? If you trace back right through church history, 
from the minute Constantine and Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire, things started to go badly wrong. Why would we want to be in the mainstream? Christianity has always thrived on the margins. Mission has always thrived on the margins. We are a church protected. We're measured. We're logged. We are in the book. We are protected. And that's what's going on here. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise, measure the temple of God, the people of God, the church, and the altar, and those who worship there. But do not measure the outside court, the unbelieving world. We are protected. The church is protected. Second thing we see in chapter 11 here is this. One, you have the church protected, but two, you have the church proclaiming. One, church protected, two, church proclaiming. There's a proclamation here. The nations trampled the temple. Yes, they're persecuted, but, but they still proclaim. It is into that context of the world, uh, uh, the church being persecuted, where the message of the gospel goes forth and is proclaimed. And we'll see it here uh, very, very clearly. Jesus sends these two witnesses, and they're given authority to do ministry for 1,260 days, it says here. Right. Now, we need to stop, and we need to do a wee bit of interpretation around these numbers. You're going to love this. I am not good at math. If I make a mistake, have grace for me, please. Math was probably one of my worst subjects, all right? So if I'm saying like 1,260 days is three and a half years, you've got to believe me, all right? Go home and do the math. I hope you'll find it's true, right? That's just, we'll go with that. Right. 1,260 days. It's the same as 42 months, three and a half years. That's a significant number in the Bible. It's a number that actually appears over and over again throughout Scripture. Let's do a quick survey. Numbers 33, there are 42 encampments in Israel's journey through the wilderness. And again, we'll see the wilderness theme picked up in chapter 12, but there's 42 encampments through, through Israel's journey through the wilderness. And you'll see there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap in this, in chapter 11, chapter 12, between the ministry of Moses and Elijah. Likewise, according to Luke chapter 4, if you look at Luke chapter 4 verse 25, there are three and a half years during the ministry of Elijah when it did not rain. See, as I said, we'll see Elijah's ministry echoed as we go through the passage. The same number appears, this three and a half years, appears in Daniel, Daniel 7, 25, when it refers to a period of time in which the beast opposes God and his people. Daniel 12, 7, when a figure with this hand raised to heaven like the angel at the end of Revelation chapter 10 tells Daniel that the end will come after time. It's a significant number. If you've been reading forward in the book of Revelation, which I'm sure you have, over the Christmas period, I'm sure you thought to yourself, do you know what? I'll get a bit of a head start. No, none of you did that. That's right. Uh, <laughs> if you've been reading forward and you went into chapter 12, verse 5, there's another image, and we'll see it next week, this image of the woman in the wilderness uh, pursued by this satanic dragon. For how long? 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months. Why? Why? 
Three and a half is half of. You're worse than miles than me. Seven. What's seven in the book of Revelation? Perfection. This is partial, not complete. Partial, not complete. The suffering will be real, but it will not be final. It will not be complete. That's why this number is here. And so what you have here is these couple of Old Testament images really like coming through strong here in chapter 11. Uh, if you look at verse 4 to 6, uh, there's a couple of, there's three key Old Testament passages that John uses here to identify the mission of these witnesses. First, he says they're like two olive trees and then two lampstands. They stand before the Lord. And what we have here in, in the background is Zechariah chapter 4. The people of God returned from exile, the broken down temple in Jerusalem. They were tasked with the reconstruction of the temple. Zechariah is sent to encourage them by portraying their leaders for them. Zerubbabel and Joshua, like what? Olive trees. Olive trees. Again, here we see that image here. Whose constant supply of oil keeps a single, what? Lampstand of God burning brightly. The lampstand, again, is a metaphor for the people of God. If you go back in Revelation, you'll see this. Who does Jesus walk amongst in chapter 1? He walks amongst the lampstands. Who are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches, the people of God. These two witnesses, these two olive trees, these two lampstands are, in other words, the witness of the church. They are the witness of the church, sustained and supplied by the ready supply of the Spirit of God to bear bright, unceasing witness to Christ Jesus in a dark, dark world. So you're with me? Are you? You don't look like it, right? <coughs> you're sitting there. I have no idea where we are right now. Are we in church? Yep, right. So the first thing, the measuring the people of God. These two witnesses that enter into the scene, the people of God, proclaiming the message of God. And then we're introduced to a character. As I said, we'll be introduced to him today, and he will make more appearances as we go through the rest of the book, and that is the beast. Right. So, just in case, just in case we go from like this triumphalism where we're protected and we're preserved and we're, we're, uh, we're going to be presented holy and perfect at the end days. And just in case we go into like naive triumphalism, the book reminds us that we will be persecuted. We will come under persecution. It is not going to be this easy ride. And John introduces this character and this is one of John's patterns. What he does, he'll introduce a character at one point, and then he'll come back and he'll elaborate on that character later in the book. He introduces us here the character of the beast. And the beast rises from uh, the pit. This antichrist figure whose, whose forces have always opposed Christ and his witness. And look at what he's permitted to do. 
Look at what he is permitted to do. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. If you are just a visitor with us today, welcome to this Sunday where we talk about dead bodies lying in the streets. Hey! Right. Uh, that's what I thought. Right. What's going on here? What is happening? This is to demonstrate that the church will be persecuted. And it is also to demonstrate that at times it will look like the church has been defeated. At times it will look very much like the church has been defeated. These bodies are shown every indignity that they can. They are left lying for three and a half days in the streets of this city symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where our great Lord, where our Lord was crucified. And what this city represents is an unbelieving world. What the city represents is an unbelieving world. And the world rejoices at the apparent end of the witness of Christ. Why does it rejoice? Because here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel's good news. But an unbelieving world doesn't want to hear it. It is troublesome for an unbelieving world. It pricks the conscience. It shows us our sin. It shows us who we are. It sh yes, it shows us our Savior and it shows us a way out, but it is troublesome for the unbelieving world to hear the gospel. And so they rejoice over its seeming demise and seeming defeat. You see, throughout history, this has been the case for the church. At times and in various places, at different moments across the history of the church, the church and its witness seems to have been silenced. Think back, not that terribly long ago, to think that there was a mass expulsion of missionaries from China. And it was thought that the witness was silenced during communism, China, well, at the time of communism in China. It looked like this fledgling church had been destroyed. Decades later, decades later, when, when restrictions and, uh, had been changed and, and things had been moved uh, and Western missionaries went back into China, what did they find? They found a thriving church. The church of Christ had risen up in when it had been persecuted, when it had been marginalized, God's Spirit moved, and it, it, it enthused the church in China, actually. It looked as though it had been killed, but it was thriving. Think of modern-day Iran, 
where you can literally be killed for the witness of the gospel, and yet unprecedented numbers of people are coming to Christ in that place. The witness of Christ looks often to be snuffed out. Its servants martyred or silenced. And yet, look at verse 11 with me. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. This is like one of those, uh uh-oh. This is like, you know, where Rocky goes down about the tenth time in the tenth round, in the tenth time in the tenth round. You know where it's going, like. Everybody knows. And all of a sudden, he rises up, or like, for any of us who used to watch wrestling, anybody aware of The Undertaker? No? A few of us aware of The Undertaker. Uh, Where he just used to sit up, and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, that's the church for the unbelieving world. We thought we had them killed. We thought we had them silenced. Uh-oh. They're back. They're back. After three and a half days, God entered them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. This is a moment of vindication for the church. The enemies thought it was defeated. They rise up. God vindicates them. Look, their enemies are watching. Great fear falls upon them. They thought they'd been defeated, but they weren't. Again, folks, this simply reminds us, keep proclaiming the gospel. Even though we face persecution, even though we face trial, even though we face marginalization, even though we face death, keep proclaiming the message of the gospel. So we have the church protected, we have the church proclaiming, and then finally, we have the church worshiping. The church protected, the church proclaiming, the church worshiping. Let's look at it. And that, at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand of the people were killed in an earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. Then a seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders, again, were back in the throne room, and the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who, who is and who was, 
For you have taken your great power, and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came at the right time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. And there was flashing, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. What you have here, folks, is worship. Worship. The angel who talked with John at the end of chapter 10 took an oath and he swore that with the sounding of the last of the seven trumpets, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. That last trumpet sounds in the remainder of chapter 11, and it gives us the commencement of the judgment of the world and the worship in heaven. Worship in heaven. And what we really need to do here again is get into this, get into our heads heaven's throne room. When the final trumpet sounds and the church work, on, church work on earth is at last complete, the saints are caught up in glory together with Christ, and every eye will behold His majesty. And worship breaks out. Worship. And there's something very small in this passage that I want to encourage you with, and I don't know if you saw it, but it's a massive encouragement to us today. Let me read it to you. It's verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath, came, your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. Both small and great. Some of you look at your work for the kingdom and think it's very insignificant and very small. You think no one sees it. You don't get any praise for it. You don't get the pats on the back, but you're faithful in what you do. That verse tells us that He will reward both the small and the great. Here's the reality. God sees all our efforts for the kingdom and will reward every single last one of them. Amen? Every single last effort that is made for the kingdom of God, He will see and He will reward. What a day this will be. The last day. The last woe has come. But let me ask a question as we finish. What will be your position on that day? What will be your position on that day? 
will you be able to say to yourself, at last? At last, my wearisome labor for Christ is finished. At last, my long, sore combat with sin is over. At last, I no, need to, I no longer need to run this race with perseverance because I am now in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I worship Him face to face. At last, I don't need to walk by faith no more because I see. My Savior has come. He has split the skies, and I am with Him. Behold His glory. Worship Him forever and ever. Will that be your response when that last trumpet sounds? Or, when you hear that last trumpet sound, will it be the greatest shock of your life and the beginning of an eternity with the biggest regret you've ever known? See, we can say in here today that the church is protected, but are you a part of the church? Do you know Jesus? We can say that the church will proclaim, but do you know Jesus? Are you part of the church? We can say that the church will worship, but are you part of the church? Do you know Jesus? My prayer that there's not one person in this room will leave today without the assurity and the knowledge that on that last day, we will go into that last day with no fear, worshiping our King and praising Him for His grace, His mercy, and His justice. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for uh, Your Word, and we thank You for how You speak. Father, our prayer today is that You will continue to speak now as we worship You, as we remember King Jesus together and all that He has done for us. We praise Your name. We praise You, Jesus. And it's in Your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.